Hi, this is Bron Burton, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page. There's that music, that wonderful music. Good morning, good morning. It is two minutes past the hour of nine o'clock. You're on 3RRR. This is Radio Marinara. I'm Anthony Boxshaw. And I'm Farm Charco. Hello, everyone. Hi, Farm. Hello. How are you? Good. We're in the studio together. <laughs> I know. For we the just first time. <laughs> Even though we've been in lots of different studios at different times with each other, but we've never just, you and I, alone in a studio. Even though it's COVID, we can still do that. Yeah, it's awesome. Have you, how, are you well? Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, man, I had such a great time at the uh, Marine Friends Forum from Park Victoria to sharing the love forum yesterday. And um, we will be chatting with uh, Mark Rodriguez soon about the forum and every beautiful volunteer that has turned up there to uh, share the love of the marine environment and their amazing work that they're name. doing. It's such a great name too. Yeah, we're going to talk to Mark later, but probably in about 15 minutes or so and have a big chat about that. But you t- I'll, I'll interview you both because you were there. I came <laughs> I like, there you know, on-the-spot yeah. reporters. Yeah, yeah. Before we get into that, though, we've got to thank Tim. I, I just um, – I've run out of superlatives for Tim. <laughs> Like I just, it is so awesome. Like beyond, he's like post superlative. I know, I know, and it's it's one of my favorite parts of my Sunday yes. when I get in the car and drive to the studio to be on the show. I listen to Vital Bits, and it's always on point for the Sunday morning that I'm experiencing I, at did, that point. How does he know this? I agree. It's, it's like magic. is either playing like something that's like you know soulful or whatever, or something that's kind of upbeat or something that yeah, I agree. He's just um, I know he's got like an OBE or a knighthood or something as well, but I think he just, we've. Got to, we've got to try and think about how we can recognise his contribution. I think this is pretty. We need good to we start need superlatives. Yeah, we you do. Know, we do need we need superlatives. Maybe what we could do is if um, let's get <laughs> our listeners to post on our Facebook superlatives for Tim, and then we'll share them with Tim. That we can sounds use great. Them. We use them like every week <laughs> as we kind of send us a message, everyone, on our Facebook page. If you have any interesting superlatives that you think will apply to Tim Thorpe from Vital Bits, because he's so awesome, let us know, and, and we will use them on the show next we time. We will, and because he 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 needs a whole suite of superlatives. Superlatives for himself, <laughs> the Thorpian superlatives, we're going to call them. Amazing. Like, anyway, so thank you, Tim. We've kind of, he's always embarrassed when we do this, but honestly, he's just a national treasure. Um, they're going to make a stamp. Yeah, that's what we should do. We should petition Australia Post for a stamp. Anyway, um, we do have a huge show, as you mentioned, sharing the love right along the coastline with all the amazing marine volunteers. Mark Rodriguez is going to join us in, in everything increasingly short period of time. You've been watching. The doco of the moment. Yes, Seaspiracy. Oh, my God. Mm. Did I open up a can of tube worms <laughs> when, I, when I told the Radio Marinara team that I was reviewing that film? I did wonder when Cade replied. We had this little email conversation about it, and Cade replied with some very, very emphatic commentary. Look, there are many opinions, and we mm. will be getting into that very soon, so stay tuned for that. Um, and then towards the end of the show, we're going to be having our monthly look at marine and coastal adaptations because you know even without paris even with paris even if we achieve the paris agreement we've still got a lot of change locked in so we're having a conversation about that and this time we're revisiting actually picking up a conversation that we started in february with dr sue ann watson from 
Townsville, she's from the tropical Queensland, the, the Museum of Tropical North Queensland, far north Queensland, um, in um, Townsville. And so we'll have a bit of a chat about mollusks and Wonderful. adaptations. That's very exciting. Have you got any news? Uh, no, I've weather. got some weather. Weather. Oh, <laughs> let's we start have, with that. Can we do intercontinental weather? We can, awesome. absolutely. So let's start with <laughs> Melbourne, though, for the people here. It's uh, the weather for Sunday the 2nd of May. For Melbourne, we can expect a top of 25 today, which is so lovely, um, partly cloudy. Sorry, can I just – did you say 25? Yes. You know it's May. Yes, I know. Like – Okay. But this is this I, is autumn, right? This. We still we still get some really nice warm That's days every winter. now and then. We're, haven't we just started winter? Oh no, winter starts in June. Yeah. Okay, sorry. I always feel like because May, <laughs> Melbourne. Yeah. Okay, the whole technical thing. Look, yeah. Maybe I shouldn't uh, celebrate climate change too much, but yeah. today is a top of twenty-five, partly cloudy, sixty uh, percent chance of showers in the late afternoon and evening. Oh, and there it is. The chance of a thunderstorm. There you go. Yeah, there you we're go. all good yeah, now. Yeah. Hey, it's the chance of a thunderstorm in the late afternoon and evening. Winds are northerly, fifteen to twenty-five k's an hour, uh, reaching up to forty k's an hour in the late morning and early afternoon. Monday, we've got a top of twenty and rain in the afternoon and evening, about ninety-five. percent Tuesday, 16 and rain. Oh, Wednesday, 17 and 30% like chance of rain. <laughs> for Geelong and the Surf Coast area today, especially for the lovely volunteers of the Parks Victoria Forum, top of 26. They're wow. so happy right now. High chance of showers, though, and potentially a thunderstorm from the mid-afternoon. So, everyone, oh. if you want to go for a snorkel, get one in this morning. <laughs> now. Stay out of the water when the thunderstorms Except are Mark, around. Except Mark, because we're going to call you soon, so don't <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, the tides, Port Phillip Heads, the next low tide is uh, quarter past nine, so in seven minutes. Um, and mm. next high tide will be at 4.20 p.m. Now. So, that means slack is kind of about midday-ish. Yeah. 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 A bit after. So probably probably good timing if you want to go out before the thunderstorms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and Cliff sent us the weather report from <laughs> we Casey Station. Is Cliff now our Antarctic correspondent? I think. Oh, he I is. think you think so. Yeah, after I the think other he week. Is. Oh, completely. It's be. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's always on time sending the weather. Thank you so much, Cliff, for uh, sending the weather through. At three uh, fifty-seven this morning in Antarctica at Casey Station, um, <gasps> it was minus nine point seven <laughs> degrees. So not too bad. That's quite mild. However. <laughs> bring a jacket because the wind chill factor was making it 17 point minus 17.9 degrees celsius That's outside celsius, isn't it? yeah oh. humidity 82 percent and winds of 12 knots and uh gusting up to 13 knots and he also oh. sent this lovely picture of the aurora forecast oh wow and i'll have to post it to the facebook page again because it's it's like you'll see a map of antarctica and this beautiful green ring um, around parts a part of Antarctica that is it basically literally looks like the aurora wow. <laughs> on uh, on Antarctica and this is like where you'll be able to this is the aurora forecast yeah the where forecast you can see the aurora. yeah so it's green which means uh, according to oh. uh, the little legend that it's uh, 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 a, a slight chance of an aurora. <laughs> <laughs> They've got that. It's like we're going to thirty-five percent yeah, chance of an yeah. aurora. So excellent, Cliff. If you have any photos of and that, does it go? Is through. it like the same as like the rainfall thing? So it gets like dark, red is a high yes, chance of yes, aurora. Yes, yes. So it goes from green to like, yellow to red. Okay. Yeah. So I guess red means um, absolutely lots gonna get of chances of an aurora. Wow. Yeah. Uh, he okay. also sent through some wonderful photos once again, some landscape photos that I'll be posting on our Facebook page awesome. after the show, and a photo of his fridge, which is basically <laughs> an igloo with a 
bunch of bottles of beer <laughs> strewn all over the place. He's even made some little holes in the ice um, to look like a wine rack made out of ice. So because you know it's quite what? entertaining. If, if he's got the beer in the ice, it's actually going to be warmer than the air temperature. Yeah, because the ice probably. will be a, the ice is <laughs> at a stable temperature. It, yeah. Yes, it will be insulating it. Well, that's what igloos do, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, like yeah. insulate. So, oh, that's um, funny. Yeah, so that's that. That was quite entertaining, and I'll oh, make sure cool. to post that on our Facebook page. So, thank you very much for that, Cliff. As oh, very, very cool. Hey, um, I, you know, like, have you got much news? I've got one news. Okay, let's do that. All right, let's get let's into it. it. So, since we're doing a film theme, um, this this show. My Octopus Teacher, the yes, very which... popular marine Netflix documentary oh that uh, Bron and I reviewed uh, yeah. for us a few months ago. Can, um, can we just pause there? Yeah. and just Because we have to just revisit it and, and just say to people, if you haven't seen it, Go just really it. do see it. Yeah. It's... Kind of, I, I, you know, because I, I was, you know, I'm always late to every trend. And so, you know, I was like, oh, surely this can't be as good as everyone carrying on about it. And I watched it, it is beautiful. Uh, it is absolutely beautiful. And it's called A Heartwarming Story of a Human Octopus Friendship. And it has won the Oscar for the best documentary yes, at the 93rd Academy Awards, uh, which were taking place in Los Angeles last week. And um, directed by Pippa Ehrlich and James Reed, My Octopus teacher follows filmmaker and diver Craig Foster as he explores an underwater kelp forest near Cape Town, South Africa. And Foster appears to bond with an octopus that he encounters living in the area. And uh, what wasn't mentioned here, but it's quite important to the story, is that uh, Craig at the time was suffering from a severe burnout. And yeah. he, was, he was really... Well, um, kind of a breakdown, really, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely. Like, oh, and he was retreating into nature yeah. to heal himself. Yeah. And uh, with the help of uh, connecting with nature and, and, and making a friendship with this octopus um, and telling his personal story. He made a beautiful documentary. It was really interesting also because about partway through you suddenly realise, oh, hang on, whose story is this? Like whose journey is yeah. this? You know, because it's so much about the octopus as it is actually about him. Yeah, absolutely. However, so, yes, footage, because of course what you didn't mention is he is also an underwater photographer. Yes. And, and videographer. Yeah, and, and he shoots most of the film himself yeah, as well. Yeah, and it yeah, is yeah. just stunning. Yeah. And of course uh, for those who aren't aware – we, you know, South Africa and us, we kind of share a kind of relatively similar looking southern facing coastal yeah. habitat. Yeah, absolutely. So the kelp forests, they're probably a little more intact than ours. <laughs> uh, some places, yes. Other places, no. Mm, yeah. <laughs> kind of depends on where you go. But uh, many places, yes. It's got, oh, the, the coast there is so intensely beautiful. I've dived a lot on the east coast. Okay. And cannot recommend it enough. Wow. It is stunning. And now the east. Yeah, okay. so so around. So I've been mostly around up around Saint Lucia, right. uh, so sort of like the top of the east coast yep. uh, near Mozambique. Yep. Uh, Sodwana Bay is a very very popular dive spot, and uh, it is one of the still most pristine ecosystems wow. I've I've dived in, um, and that is increasingly harder to find. Unfortunately. Oh no, isn't it? Isn't yeah. It? So I forgot you've dived there. all over the world. <laughs> yeah. We must just interview you one day about <laughs> all the cool places you've dived in the oh, world. Yes, I keep I could forgetting tell you that. <laughs> G'day, John Clark here. When I want to learn about all things wet and salty, which is a pretty much constant desire on my part, I tune into Radio Marinara Sunday mornings at 9am on 102.73 Triple R. Uh, we do we do love the late John That's Clark. Such he's, a great intro. Oh my goodness, what a sensational um, comedian and, a, and person he was. You're on Radio Marinara, as John said, it's 17 minutes past the hour. Uh, it's about, um, I won't even work out how, how long it is till the doctor's at 10 o'clock. And uh, the, about 
I can't even, I don't even know how often. But anyway, five times <laughs> there has been a thing called Sharing the Love, which is a program for marine volunteers along the coastline run ostensibly by Parks Victoria. And we welcome back our, can we, are we allowed to call him our marine park correspondent? Everyone's going to be a correspondent this morning. Mark Rodrigue from Parks Victoria. Mark, good morning and welcome back to Radio Marinara. Good morning, Ant. Good morning, Fum, and good morning, listeners. Yeah, great to be back with you guys down and down here at magnificent, beautiful Point Addis Marine National Park today. Ah, that's where you are. So you're on the ground at the moment in a marine national park, or at least next to it. Now well, I'm next to it, yeah. <laughs> it would sound a bit blub, blub, blub if you were in it. Hey, now tell me, how long... So this is the fifth Share the Love. So for people who've missed it, when did it start and quickly, what does it do? All right, so Sharing the Love is basically an opportunity for volunteers from one end of Victoria to the other to come together to share their passion uh, for the marine environment with each other, to share their great ideas, to share their troubles and their woes, to share their uh, innovations, etc. With a, with a, in the aim of building a sort of like a community of practice in terms of marine conservation and uh, to really support each other, I guess, for a lot of our community organisations that are scattered across the state from one end, like places like Beware Reef in the uh, far east to, you know, Friends of the Merai Sanctuary down in the in the sort of Warrnambool area, people can be quite isolated. So every couple mm. of years what we've tried to do is to bring people together in a forum. It's really about volunteers connecting with each other. There's a bit of an opportunity for some a gratuitous agency promotional material as well, but at the same time, it's really about simply people getting together and just building connections, you know, having someone that they can pick up the phone with and uh, call if they've got an idea, to test ideas out, etc., to be inspired by what other people are doing. So the aim is essentially to to give that opportunity for, for you know, a community of practice in the marine, uh, marine conservation space for volunteers. It must be because, yeah, as you say, you've dragged, you've got people from right along the coast who spend their time being these kind of wonderful local custodians and stewards of beautiful places along the coastline that they care about, that they work within their own communities about. It must be a kind of a really special moment when you get all those people together in the one room and they're all kind of, oh, yeah, there must be just so much damn passion in there. Well, and it's a, they're a bit hard to manage. They get a bit unruly at times, you know, because there's so much to talk about. You know, as the person who's trying to actually run a program, stick to a schedule, you know, trying to get people to just be quiet occasionally is, is, is challenging. I, I've got the little squeaky shark, which I've been using. It's clearly I need to get a, a loud megaphone for that purpose in future. Absolutely. But, um, it's uh, yeah, it's uh, fun to be able to attest to that. It's um, it's uh, like the conversation, the level of noise the room during the breaks and things like that and just the conversations that are going on outside of the formal program are just incredible to, to sort of eavesdrop in and just see what, what's actually happening. You can see people actually talking about their ideas and, you know, talking not only about the good things that are doing but the shared problems that they have, you know, yeah. issues around invasive species, issues around uh, you know, dogs. We've got a little bit of a challenge here this morning with a few dogs around the place but anyway, they're all, they're all things that people can uh, obviously gravitate around and discuss and it's just a great thing. We've had as you say, uh, five. This is the fifth event. The first one was back in uh, 2012 in Barwon Heads. We've had an event down at Tidal River at Wilson's Prom in 2014. Uh, one over on the west in, at Warrnambool in 2016. 2018 at Summers on the Mornington Peninsula, and it was scheduled. This one was actually scheduled for this time last year, mm. uh, but you, we all know what happened then, and we rescheduled for September, and that didn't happen. So, the chance to actually have people 
meet face to face in in a room and you know it's uh it's a pretty special moment for everybody i think and now give us a quick i'm gonna we we actually believe so much in this that we've sent two correspondents fun went yesterday and 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 kate is down there now with you but so we're gonna get kate on in a tick but just quickly before we do give us like i know you said that it's kind of this you know uh, random babble of conversation happening, but you did you did mention there was a program. Just really quickly, oh, like what kind of stuff happens in the program? What do you what do people do? Okay, so well the first the first part of the day is very much about the get to know you kind of stuff. So you know what are different groups doing? So a series of presentations on you know what what we're doing in our backyard kind of thing. Um, we moved into the afternoon with a couple of field trips down to the estuary, uh, looking at uh, some drone monitoring along the coast mm. that uh, the uh, Great Ocean Road Committee are, uh, are looking uh, doing at the moment. We also had a bit of a look at an estuary watch program, came back, and then there were a series of workshops people could walk between, uh, choose between in terms of uh, that were actually run by volunteers and some of the organisations. So Kate and Nicole ran it. Uh, one on using iNaturalist. We had a, a workshop run by the wonderful Shannon Hurley on marine campaigning. We had a workshop uh, run on uh, on yoga for snorkels and divers, which was wow. a sensational one. It was all about you know breathing and you know basically getting yourself yeah. prepared for the for the getting in the water kind of thing, um, and a number of other activities that were just sensational to see. Uh, people actually discussing particular themes, but they were led by the volunteers or the organisation. Yeah, right. There was also one that you hosted, um, it was about grand writing, wasn't it, Mark, hosted by Parks Correct. Victoria, which is yeah. very useful uh, because those are skills that volunteer groups also need. So there's a bit of upskilling happening as well, which yeah, is great. Nice. Absolutely. So, yeah, the Coast Care team, Bethany and Ali, who are here, uh, with us basically ran a session on how to apply for and get a big bag of money and hopefully some success comes out of that, getting a, a few pointers in the right direction. So that was yesterday. This morning, though, is uh, we're actually out here for the entire morning at Point Addis and it's a stunning low tide. I think 10 o'clock's uh, low tide time. I'm mm-hmm. just looking... As I'm speaking out across the reef, I've never seen so much reef. It's a particularly wow. low, low tide, yes, if that makes yes, sense to Yes, it people. is. And it, because of the and moon this week, we had that big yeah, super, yeah, moon. super moon. This yeah, is going to be one yeah. of the lowest tides of the year, in fact. Yeah, it's it's huge. And we're, we've lucked out not only with a good low... Well, the luck wasn't the low tide. That was by good planning. Um, <laughs> but the weather is the thing that's just been... You know, when you book those things in a year ahead, it's just... Yeah, you don't yes. know what you're going to get from a Victorian weather point in of view. May? But we've lucked out totally. <laughs> in May, exactly. Hey, now, I'm going so, no, to ask fortunate. you to... I'm going to thank. I'm going to ask you to pass over to now. Tell Katie's got two minutes. He can't tell us much, okay? But I'm going to okay, pa- pass right. over to Kate, and we're going to get an on-the-spot report. Hey, but Mark, thank okay. you so much for running it for starters and for joining us this morning. All right, you're most welcome. Thanks for the interest. See ya. <laughs> So how are we going to... Okay, there you are. These are, are two you? of the, the people that uh, that are the chattiest at this Marine Forum that we are having on the radio today. Good morning, Cade. I wasn't this morning. I was running late because I was out surfing. Ah, you did get a surf in, did you? You bugger. I missed yes. out. <laughs> so, Cade, we, you know, like I was just saying that, um, you know, Marinara believes in this so much that we've spent, sent two correspondents. You know, if I was there yesterday, you're there today. Um, how, what's, what's your biggest take-home message? What's the thing that's been, you know, the, the most kind of wonderful for you to see about the share, share the love? Oh, look, to be honest, I think a big part of it is that there's a lot of these people I even talk to day to day and in different roles, but you don't realise how much work they do mm. and the amount of hours that people put into protecting their local community, um, communicating with them is just phenomenal. And I've now got plenty of segments for the next rest of the year just from being down here. That's right, we want to get them all in. <laughs> people. So there was a very, very 
Oh, oh, he's oh, he's they're on point at us, so I reckon. Yeah. Fum, I reckon the reception is reception. a bit patchy. Are you there, Cade? I think. I'm sorry, you lost me. Yeah, yeah you're we back. Did we did? Did you walk behind? Yeah. You just went for a surf, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, I just went to check how low that tide is, and it's looking sensational. No, I think it's just the passion and the amount of hours that are un- often underestimated that people put in to protect their local local areas, and I think. Communities don't realise the amount of um, work that goes into, you know, removing weeds, um, protecting, removing um, introduced species. So it's really nice to see that and see the recognition being given. Hey, if people are listening and thinking, oh, you know, I, I've always thought maybe after the pando, maybe I should get in, or not after, we're still in it, of course, but you know, maybe you should get into my local kind of, you know, protected area or find one and travel down to the coast and get involved. Like, what, what do you suggest? What, what is it that people are doing? Um, are, they, are they just finding one near them and getting involved in a friends group? Yeah, so the friends groups are probably the, one of the best um, point of contacts. There's them for pretty much every marine park has a friends group. But it's also, you know, things like people just picking up litter. Some people do it for, like, meditation almost. It's like their mm. exercise, they're outside, they're picking up litter. So there's the beach patrol people that we have quite on, on quite regularly. But I think the friends group are the best in that they do a diverse range of things, particularly down here at Point Addis. They're doing stuff in the marine environment, but they're also doing coastal stuff. They've got the box iron glass forest that they're doing work in as well. And it's, like, one of my favourite places in the world. Yeah, and also not to forget that uh, many of the friends groups are looking for new members because... Uh, some of them are getting a little bit older and they're looking for younger people to uh, to uh, join them as well and take over the torch. So if you are interested and you have kids, bring them along, find your local friends group and uh, see what you can do to contribute and make some new friends in the process. Most definitely. They're not getting older, they're just getting more experienced and they need to pass that <laughs> <reason> <laughs> When I say older, I mean wiser, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And, with, and with less functioning knees. Hey, um, thank you so much, Kate. And when you, when you get off, you know, are you guys, both you and Mark and the rest of everyone down there, I guess there's more than 50 people. Is that right? Yeah, about 50. Yeah, there 50, is, yeah. yeah we're going to join everyone for a bit of a sea slug search and um, some sea search quadrats. Awesome, awesome. Well, you enjoy yourself down there and thanks for um, connecting and um, tell Mark, thank you very much. Most definitely. Thanks. Good on you, Kate. He's already off, so he's already (laughs) heading down to the water and he couldn't even wait to say goodbye where the reception was good. Yeah, well, this is a wonderful time to go snorkelling, actually, because that coast is so wild, but having the combination of such a low tide and Mm. the calm weather today, yesterday it was like a lake. It was beautiful. So, yeah, I'm envious of everyone who gets to go in the water and have a snorkel today. It is is fantastic. And it was great that Mark could join us, Mark Rodriguez from Parks Victoria, and, um, of course, our very own Cade Mills. And I just realised I should have declared... Um, for those that don't know, I now sit on the board of Parks Victoria. I didn't even think to mention. So I, we would have done this regardless of my involvement in that organisation or not. <laughs> Absolutely. But I, I just thought, uh, gosh, that's one of those things that you just got to make sure you get out there when you do, when you can. Hi, I'm David Suzuki, and you're listening to Radio Marinara on 3RRR 102.7 FM. Thank you, David. And before David and that message, uh, Not Drowning Waving, wonderful old album from 1987. Uh, called Claim um, from um, Not Running Waving. Go on, Radio Marinara. Fun. Ah, let's get into it. Okay. <laughs> um, so, as you may have known, Seaspiracy uh, is a new documentary about ocean conservation and it's on Netflix at the moment. Uh, it was produced by Kip Anderson, the director of the documentary Cowspiracy. Not surprisingly. Oh. 
Oh. Yes. And directed by and starring as well British filmmaker Ali uh, Tabritzi. And the film features human impacts on marine life, um, such as plastic marine br- debris, ghost nets and overfishing around the world. And it follows the filmmaker Ali on his quest to uncover what is actually the biggest threat to the health of our oceans. Um, okay. It features a bunch of marine conservation heavyweights as well, um, such as Sylvia Earle and Paul Watson mm. and um, George Monbiot also oh, yeah, makes right. an appearance in the film. Um, yeah, so it, it, it draws together a lot of, um, uh, you know, those conservation heavyweights and... Um, but there oh, is just yeah. there was so a, there was much going on. Yeah. Wow. So as I as I said in the intro of the show today, as soon as I uh, as soon as I told the Radio Marinara team I would be reviewing this film, I had no idea what I was getting myself into. I opened a can of massive marine worms, <laughs> and uh, um, because this film has come under a lot of a lot it of fire, like it has had a lot of um, flack from all over the place, and rightly so because it ah. is it is very especially the first hour of documentary. So it's, it's an hour and thirty minutes. And the first hour is mostly spent bombarding you with facts about the state of the oceans, about the effect that uh, plastic pollution has on the oceans um, and also overfishing. And the problem with that is that only part of what he claims is true. And he tends to he tends to extrapolate findings that are not really extrapolatable to each other. And uh, there are also a whole bunch of claims in there that are just plainly wrong. And that is always a sad thing when that happens with the documentary because you want to believe in the cause, you know, you're enjoying the storytelling and you want to make up your own mind, but if you're not getting the right facts presented, it's hard. It seems to me that, I mean, there's, you know, undeniable reality that plastic pollution is having a massive impact in the ocean. Absolutely. Undeniable that bad, badly behaved, poorly managed, overfished fisheries is having an impact in the ocean. Like, these things are real. However, what I'm hearing is he maybe takes them too far in some well it's it's a very um his perspective is this perspective of a novice of somebody yeah, right. who has just started researching this kind of stuff and it is kind of lost on the uh, intricacies and the more uh, complex the the, comple- the complexity really of marine systems and how it works so the claims that he makes are quite you know he, he's painting things with a broad brush yep. um, and one of the things that he does that really oh my god it really kicked me in the gut um, <laughs> on a personal level uh, is he he starts his journey like many of us by looking at the plastic pollution in mm-hmm. the oceans and seeing that as the biggest threat to our oceans mm. um, and then he goes and researches that and realizes no it's actually overfishing it's much worse so there's already this binary that he tries ah. to kind of say like oh no actually it's not plastic pollution that's the biggest threat it's actually overfishing and so so it's kind of like all of these things are so threats to the oceans, It's really right? interesting too because those two, um, are, you know, if we had to weight them, I'd be more concerned about the constant increasing emissions in the atmosphere. As and, the, climate know, like, and climate change. climate change yeah, as absolutely. a bigger, you know, like I kind of feel like. Yeah, so that's what I mean when I say to, there is a binary say, there. Yeah. yeah, there is a binary um, there that, that, that is not really necessary to do because one problem is not bigger than the other. Yep. Um, they are all big problems and they are interrelated. Yes. They are so interconnected yeah, yeah. with yeah. each other. You cannot see them in silos like most environmental issues. One of the things that I saw, I saw some 
fantastic um, analysis of this, and and one of them was from um, we'll claim him, um, um, uh, associate professor. I think he's now Bryce Stewart in in the University of York. Had this wonderful article in the Guardian, but also there's a couple of interviews doing the rounds where, you know, in the UK this has been really going off this yeah. conspiracy thing, and I know yeah. Bryce has been really all over the media. Um, well, he kind of says a, li- a little bit what you're saying. You know, there's elements that are so important and 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 real and truthful in here. But one of the points that he made was this is so much a Western view. Oh, absolutely. Because his argument was there, is, there are many, many people all over the world that sub, that subsistence farm and survive on the basis of sea seafood and sea protein yeah. um, that are sustainably managed. Um, and and the kind of that perspective is not in the in the film. No, that's right. So there are a lot of perspectives are missing, yeah. and most notably, uh, fishery scientists' perspectives. Oh, yeah, you're they kidding. are complete. Yeah, they they are missing oh. in this. And um, so uh, just for the for the listeners to clarify, so um, uh, the claim that is being made in this film is that fishing in general, commercial fishing or fisheries are unsustainable, and fishing in general is unsustainable, and that is. And that is just simply not true. Yeah. There is a large yeah. part of the mm-hmm. fisheries. So about one third of the fisheries industries in the world are still unsustainable. Mm-hmm. That is absolutely true. Um, but two thirds have already been made sustainable, and there are massive advances being made um, based on you know years and years and years of research by fisheries authorities and fisheries scientists from all over the world, setting those baselines, tracking the populations of fish. Um, calculating the quota, uh, all of that sort of thing. So it's it's really um, a little bit more nuanced uh, yeah. than it is portrayed in the film. And that is what Dr. Bryce Stewart is saying as well. He says that, you know, the biggest error is to say that sustainable fisheries don't exist. That's like saying that sustainable agriculture doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Um, and all food production systems, he says, have an impact on the natural world, but obviously some more than others. Mm. And so it's, it's just... Um, the film is taking a massive shortcut by so, by and of obviously you know the makers of cowspiracy you yeah, know their conclusion yeah, yeah, yeah. was stop eating meat and so yeah. it's not even a spoiler when i say <laughs> that the main conclusion of this film is oh no no everybody should just stop eating fish and that is just a wishful utopian thinking yeah. that we should really steer clear of. And is it unfortunate in a way because it, it, it's like, a, I don't mean to be glib, but is this like some vegan conspiracy? Like I'm going, you know, like, but is, is it yeah, unfortunate? Yeah, look, I try to like not touch conspiracy theories <laughs> with a 10-foot pole, so I'm yeah, joking when I, I yeah, say that. Look, like, you, I really you know, yeah. But I, the, the drawback for these kinds of things is what it does is it, it, it would – polarize people who aren't predisposed to imagining that of you know i have to be careful about where my sustainable fish come from yes and and therefore it's like well no don't tell me not to eat fish i'm now going to eat fish i, I just and it's yeah, almost like it's really it's really this documentary is really divisive yeah uh, even in okay. the environmental world i've read a lot of articles about this and there are fishery scientists or scientists in general that say like yes he's right the oceans are going backwards we need to stop well, eating fish and all that that's and then there's, true but then there's, yeah, yeah. That, it is true and <laughs> yeah it is true yeah. and yeah. we are we are we are making things better at the moment now what you touched on before and is, is is a very good thing to point out as well it's a very white western view of what fisheries are about and what is happening because he goes into ali the filmmaker goes into this whole documentary uh because he wants to save the whales okay okay right so so that in itself because he loves whales so that in itself is quite a western perspective already i think around ocean conservation um and also um you know 
for for three billion people on the planet, eating fish, whether it's mm. wild caught or from from uh, aquaculture makes up 20% of their protein in their yeah, diet. Kinda, yeah. And there are many, many subsistence farmers and subsistence fisheries um, uh, 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 cultural practices all over the world. People who have been living in coastal areas mm. um, depending on that fish for a very, very long time. And he doesn't really touch on that until sort of like the last 30 minutes of the documentary right. when he actually starts telling stories. Right. That's where things become interesting to me. So is it like, because it's been trending on Netflix for mm. a while and, and I'm not hearing great encouragement. Um, kids? Can kids watch this? Is well, it no, like my I, I wouldn't. So it's oh, okay. on Netflix it's actually rated for mature ad, uh, audiences ah, over okay. 15. However, uh, look, when I was 15, some of the scenes in that uh, documentary are very hard to watch. Even now, look, I'm nearly 40 years old and yeah. I was still nearly crying. Uh, there are scenes of the dolphin catching in Taji in, um, yeah, right. in Japan. But yeah. what's what's even harder to watch is towards the end, uh, which is actually an, um, one of the highlights of the film, believe mm. it or not. The filmmaker actually joins uh, the hunters on the Faroe Islands okay. uh, in northern Europe yep. because they're so controversial because they do their annual whale hunting yep. where they round up whales and that they bring into the bay and they slaughter them and it is very hard to watch because you know literally yeah. the 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 water is running, you know, red with yep. blood okay. and you, you see all the, the whales and all that sort of stuff. But he is allowed to go and film there and he has a conversation with these people who've been doing this for generations. Well, and this actually is a doing deeply it, cultural thing, yes. Doing it yeah, in yeah. a sustainable way yep. Yep. as well because, you know, they say, well, why is it different from shooting deer? Yeah. Or why is it different from killing chickens? Um, so, And that's where the documentary actually becomes really interesting. So it's not for kids. Okay, um, so not for kids. But I can recommend watching it. Oh, okay. I was just about to ask you that. Yeah, also because it made me very angry. Okay. And that is a good thing because (laughs) I feel that anger shows us where our boundaries have been crossed and what we care about. And that is something valuable to learn. So even if it's uncomfortable, I can can recommend it. So the the big final thing, and how many sea stars out of five? Oh, three out of five. Ooh, max. So it's not really even and I'm good. being generous yeah, here. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, because so just because of the misinformation. Um, wow. Okay. But, uh, I would love for the listeners, everybody, if you if you're watching this I would love to hear what you think. Uh, please mm-hmm. leave a message on our Facebook page. I'd be very interested um, in your perspectives uh, on this documentary. So that's Seaspiracy. Yes. And it's only on Netflix, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, okay. Wow. Okay. Thank you. Wow. Okay. Because I haven't seen it yet, so now I'm kinda, I'm just kind of <laughs> wondering intrigued? whether I will. Well, I am intrigued now, but I'm going to go into it with getting my my evidence based little button, you know, kind of yeah. ready. Because I'm. But gonna look, feel... the last thirty minutes, the storytelling actually gets quite good. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Hi, I'm Valerie Taylor. Sharks don't really worry me because, as we all know, they're beautiful animals. Another beautiful thing is Radio Marinara, Sundays at 9am on 3RRR. Thanks, Valerie, and you're a beautiful thing as well. In this month's Coastal Marine Adaptations, we're going to revisit the impacts of ocean acidification on mollusks. 
with Dr. Sue Ann Watson, who is a Senior Research Fellow at the ARC Centre of Excellence for Coral Reef Studies at James Cook University and Queensland Marine uh, Museum Senior Curator for Marine Invertebrates based in the Museum of Tropical Queensland in Townsville. She joins us online from far north Queensland this morning. Good morning, Sue Ann, and welcome back to Radio Marinara. Good morning. Thank you for having me. I just want to quickly, for those that don't know what ocean acidification is, we, we talked about this back in, in, in February, but we want to pick up again. Essentially, I'm going, to give, I'm going to give the listeners a quick lowdown and then you tell me where I got, got it wrong, okay? So okay. <laughs> it's, it's an impact from climate change where the increasing CO2 in the atmosphere is absorbed by the ocean, which makes it just ever so slightly more and more acidic. Now, it's not burning to touch for us, but it's enough to change the chemistry or biochemistry and behaviours of many animals, but especially mollusks, because, of course, they make their shells and things using chemicals in the ocean. Um, there's so many potential impacts, and it's frankly a little bit scary. Um, but, but there are also, and if people want to hear that, we can go back and have a look at the, um, the podcast from our February interview. Does that kind of capture ocean acidification in, you know, 35 seconds, so Yep, that was a really good summary. You got top marks for that. Well done. <laughs> hey, thank you. We, we wanted to talk about adaptations, though, which, of course, we can't not talk about impacts at the same time, but let's talk about a few of the adaptations. Um, in the US, um, there are actual human adaptations uh, occurring with mollusks. So tell us a little bit more about that to help the mollusks through, I guess. So the west coast of the US is one of the first places that we've seen the effects of ocean acidification already happening in our oceans. So the west coast is an area that's really important for shellfish industry, so oyster, there's lots of oyster farms there um, around Washington State area. And this is really important. It's, um, there's thousands of jobs and hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue for oyster farms. But what they were finding was that in about the mid 2000s, so from around 2005 onwards, there were these huge failures of baby oysters. And so billions of larvae, these baby oysters, which are also called spat, mm. um, were dying. And so the, the farmers sort of wanted to find out what, what was happening. And when they looked closer, they found that the water coming into the hatcheries was actually corrosive to these baby oysters, which are forming their shells at this time. So the larvae um, have 90% of their body weight composed of their shell, which is made of calcium carbonate, which is the same as limestone. And the waters coming in were actually corrosive. So um, obviously this is a really big problem. So the shellfish industry there had to find some kind of human adaptations or human modifications that they could do to try to help this. And so I can imagine you could do that when you've got control of the inflow. I mean, you can probably, you know, kind of try to increase the, change the acidity of the water coming in. So, but you couldn't, you could do that in, a, in an industry perspective, an agriculture perspective. You couldn't do that in the ocean, could you? I mean, are there experiments being done like there are with coral to kind of see if you can actually change local conditions outside of aquaculture? Well, it is, like you say, it's a lot more difficult in the ocean. So what was happening in the oyster hatcheries is is that the farmers were able to monitor the water conditions in real time coming into the hatcheries. Um, and they found that these corrosive conditions occurred when there were upwelling events. Huh. So this 
water that was really rich in carbon dioxide was coming up into the coastal areas with uh, strong winds. And then when it was pumped into the hatchery, it was causing these particularly corrosive conditions. So the hatcheries were able to do on a commercial scale was to add chemicals to the water to try to buffer this change in acidity and help the baby oysters. So they were able to do it on that kind of scale. And that's one of the ways that they've been able to modify their seawater to help mollusks survive. But... It's um, yeah, it's, it's it's quite an undertaking to do that on on such a large hatchery scale already. And is this so? Hi, this is Farm. Um, is is this uh, adding? I mean, it must have been like a high a high pH sort of thing that you have to add to the water. Is that only necessary to do in that first life phase of the baby oysters? Like. Once the oysters are kind of established and maybe have like a certain mass, do they kind of grow out of being so sensitive or is it going to show in the rest of their lives? So, yes, you're right that the early life stages are the very most vulnerable stages in oysters. So it's when those sort of first two days when they're just developing their first larval shell and they're using all the energy to make their shell. The hatcheries were adding sodium carbonate, which is also called washing soda or soda ash, into the water. And this is a strong alkali, which will help buffer the seawater to uh, reduce that, that, that really acidic condition. So I think that for the um, the older life stages of the oysters that are not necessarily so sensitive, they're likely to be able to tolerate a little bit more of those um, higher carbon dioxide conditions. Um, but it's this really young uh, larval stage that they were finding to be most vulnerable. And actually, as a result of that, they've actually doubled larval production in Hawaii hmm. in an area that isn't so heavily affected by ocean acidification as another modification it's, that they've been able to do it kind to help of sounds, overcome. It, it, it's like a lot of intervention, isn't it? You know, it's an enormous amount of intervention. Well, this is why they say, you know, uh, doing adaptations to climate change is going to be way more expensive in the end. Yeah, than just in decreasing than emissions. Doing exactly. the prevention. Yeah. yeah, this is a good example of that. So what about, that. so man, I, we've only got three minutes left, but what about... Um, where they're, they're, you know, a bit like coral, where, where people are doing experiments to see if there's things, you know, can you select species that are kind of slightly or variants that are slightly able to cope with these kind of coming ocean conditions? Yeah, so absolutely. That's another area where researchers have been um, working on. And in Australia, we've found the Sydney uh, rock oyster uh, researchers has been working on those. And they've found that for um, ocean acidification conditions, um, the oysters are affected in terms of fertilisation development and increased abnormalities. But what they've been able to show is that when their parents experience those ocean acidification conditions as well, the larvae are a little bit more resilient. Hmm. So they still have negative effects of ocean acidification, but they're just not quite as bad. Hmm. And then what they also did is that they use these selectively bred lines of oysters, which have been bred since 1990 for things like faster growth and disease resistance. And when they did this, uh, the same experiments on those, they found that these oysters that have been selected actually were more resistant again to ocean acidification. So this shows that over multiple generations, actually there is a potential to develop um, some more resistance 
to these greater carbon dioxide levels in our ocean. So this is a little bit of a good news story. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? It's like we're we're grasping for good news in what is generally a a really difficult situation because. As fun you said before, it seems, Sue Ann, the best thing... Oh, there's the music. We're going to have to wind up in a tick. It seems the best thing to do is for us to just drop our damn emissions. Like, I, I think that it's going to be cheaper in the long run. It's going to... But, but if we did hit Paris really quickly, Sue Ann, could, could we still kind of expect ocean acidification to stay within bounds that are acceptable? Yes, so if we move to net zero carbon dioxide emissions as quickly as possible, we'll be able to have the best outcome for marine life. Although what's interesting is that we still have this lag effect of all this carbon dioxide that we put into the ocean. So, for example, the upwelling water was last at the surface 30 to 50 years ago. So we're actually going to, even if we stop emitting carbon dioxide today, we'll still have this lag effect over a few decades where we're seeing these signals of the carbon dioxide that we've already put into the atmosphere. So, the, the, so yes, we need to stop it as quickly as possible. So better buckle up. Yeah, the take-home yeah. message here, people, is if you like scallops, oysters, mussels, any of these things, or and this, you want these things to exist, get the emissions down. Sue Ann, thank you so much for joining us again. Uh- Hi, this is Bron Burton. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page.